0: A few years ago, I was out to breakfast with my parents in my hometown. I found myself paging through the local newspaper and I stumbled upon the wedding announcements. And although I had not lived in Kansas City since I was 18, to my surprise, I actually recognized the bride in one of the photos. Huh, wow. I had gone to elementary school and middle school with this woman. It was interesting to see her face as an adult. And I'll admit that I looked at the groom and I felt kind of sorry for him. (laughs) I wondered whether he had had any idea what he was getting into and I mildly hoped that their life would turn out okay. I showed the wedding announcement to my parents, and they both jumped in their seats. My mother in particular was just electrified. You would think that I had shown her that Satan himself had gotten married. She may have actually spit on the announcement. Or at least growled. You see the bride in the photo, my old classmate, had once been a part of a group of girls I'd been friends with in elementary school. She was the leader of the group in a way and this group was mostly comprised of kind, fun loving, slightly nerdy kids, but this particular girl was different. She was charismatic, calculating, and unnervingly smart. She was the kind of girl who organized our entire class to cough as loud as we could at seven minutes after the hour just to break down the substitute teacher. She was the kind of girl who could convince you that your worthiness as a human being hinged on whether you thought a biddo honey was a delicious candy or a disgusting candy. And for your information, the only acceptable answer is that a biddo honey is disgusting. She was the only person I knew who actually made a habit of rolling her eyes at other kids, right to their face, and at adults. And in sixth grade, this girl decided to dump me from our friend group. The night it happened, I was laying on my parents' waterbed. Waterbeds were very cool back then. (laughs) And the phone rang. And on the other end, this girl informed me that I was uninvited to the sleepover that she was hosting that night. A sleepover that all the other girls would be attending. Click. And just like that, I was out. Totally dropped. Exiled. Without friends. I sobbed on the bed, and my mother rubbed my back. I had been totally rejected, and everything had changed. I don't remember many middle school lunch times, but I remember the lunch period the following Monday with this almost photographic clarity. My heart thumping in the lunch line as I put things onto my tray, walking slowly into the lunchroom and scanning for some place I could sit now that I was no longer welcome at my usual table. And after some wandering, spotting two girls from choir, Kristen Devlin and Kim Farrell, sitting at a table with an open seat and knowing that they would be too nice to turn me away. And indeed, they made room for me and welcomed me in And for that lunch period, I escaped humiliation, and I was safe. And from there, the next chapter of my life began. That was the very beginning of finding my footing. And here is something interesting. It was only all those years later, at that breakfast with my parents, when we saw the mean girl's photo in the paper, that I fully realized what had happened as a result of that fateful phone call. I found myself surprised and intrigued that my parents and I had such different responses and that we'd been carrying around these two very different stories and sets of feelings. They had been adults when all of this happened, witnessing their child's painful experience and unable to do much to change it the anguish from that time was still really visceral to them. And I think that if this mean girl were to cross paths with them, even today, they would want to give her a piece of their mind. Or at least stick a foot out to trip her. <laughs> or do something to strike back for the harm that she had caused their dear child. But my response to the photo had been very different. I didn't share those same strong feelings or the desire for condemnation or payback, and it's not because I'm a better person, but because on my end, it's so clear to me that that phone call had thrust me onto what Howard Thurman calls the growing edge, that place where old worlds are dying and new worlds are being born. That painful ending was also a primary resilience experience for me, a time that I would refer to again and again in my growing up as evidence that I was a strong and resourceful person, even though it was also an experience that made me feel like total garbage. But in the end, the veil of normal life had been lifted against my will, and I had to cobble a new life together. And you know what? I did it. And it shaped my heart as a result. I'm sure that my middle school years were profoundly unsettling for my parents to watch from the outside, and I can only imagine what it will be like for me as a parent when I get there. I floated in and out of friendships. I made good friends with another girl who really scared them. I got really interested in boys and I spent lots of time locked in my bedroom. But as Howard Thurman puts it, the roots were silently at work in the darkness of the earth. The fruit was ripening. And eventually I found my footing, found my people, and figured out what all those adults were talking about when they were encouraging me to just be myself. From our reading this morning, my efforts now turn from trying to outrun suffering to accepting love wherever I can find it stripped of causes and plans and things to strive for, I have discovered everything I could need or ask for is right here, in flawed abundance. To me, this is a complicated notion, far from perfect. I can imagine that there are experiences and moments of human suffering that don't leave any space for accepting anything. My gut tells me that the notion of being stripped of causes, plans, or things to strive for is laden with privilege. But over the last month, I couldn't stop returning to this poem. And so I bring it to you today in its flawed abundance as a text for us. Because I also sense that there are so many times when this describes our spiritual task to a tee. So many times where our task is to stop trying to outrun suffering, to stop using all our faculties to simply avoid pain and discomfort at all costs, and to pivot, turning our hearts toward accepting love wherever we can find it recognizing that what we need is already here in flawed abundance. This echoes our universalist heritage beautifully, this assertion that love is available. It's what saves us and transforms our soul in the here and now, and that it's our birthright, and it's what humans do. And looking back at my particular early adolescent growing edge once more, What I know is that I was able to start navigating through it once I let myself start accepting the flawed abundance of what was already there. There had been other nice girls in my grade all along. Maybe they weren't as cool or fashionable or mature in particular ways that I considered myself to be. Maybe we didn't always connect, but they were kind, they were fun, and I could let go of a certain vigilance I'd been holding on to for a long time and just be myself. What kind of transformation might await us if we stop trying to outrun suffering and instead accept love wherever we can find it? Simple to talk about, hard to do, Life is very complicated. But this gesture invites transformation in our own hearts and in our greater society and its institutions. And this moment is a time of so many in-process, growing-edge events. And one of those that has been on my heart, that I've been curious about, that I'm following, that impacts my life is the growing edge that we're on as a Unitarian Universalist movement. As Justin shared in last week's service, a recent hiring decision at the Unitarian Universalist Association has opened up an urgent dialogue about the patterns of institutional racism and the impact of white supremacy within our religious movement This conversation goes far beyond the specifics of a recent hire or the particular individuals involved. It's about centuries of injustice and unfulfilled commitments to dismantle racism. It's about the fact that the systems and culture of white supremacy don't need actual white supremacists in order to thrive. They just need a willingness to refrain from challenging the status quo. And in this moment, the call to dismantle white supremacy within our religious institutions is very clear. And things are shifting. On March 30th, the Reverend Peter Morales resigned as president of our association. This past week, Two more resignations came down from top positions, from Reverend Scott Taylor, Director of Congregational Life, and from Reverend Harlan Limpert, Chief Operating Officer and beloved longtime member of this congregation. And an election for a new president of the Unitarian Universalist Association is coming up in June. So where is our congregation with all of this? Well, one thing I know is that on an upcoming Sunday, soon to be determined, we will be joining at least 270 other Unitarian Universalist congregations in changing up our regular Sunday worship service and holding a teach-in instead. This teach-in is in response to the call by Unitarian Universalists of color to look critically within our faith communities for the ways that racism, sexism, and white supremacy live, including hiring practices, power brokers, and cultural habits. This call to action and this gesture of worship comes from a growing network of Unitarian Universalists, including some people from our own congregation, and it's led by UUs of color and white UUs working together. And I hope to see you there. And so here we are as a religious movement on a growing edge today, facing down systems of oppression that we did not create, but that are our responsibility to dismantle. Once again, the poet reminds us of this. My efforts now turn from trying to outrun suffering to accepting love wherever I can find it. I've discovered everything I could need or ask for is right here in flawed abundance. This feels true to me, not only as a person in the world navigating my own life, but also as a white person leaning into the work of dismantling systems of racism. Our first task, my first task as a white person, is to stop trying to outrun discomfort, shame, guilt, and the very systems that I'm trying to resist don't want me to do that. White activist and community organizer Liz Loeb, who's local, you might know Liz, she writes about this beautifully. And so I wanna leave you with her words today. Liz writes the following to a white audience. White supremacy teaches us to confuse discomfort with danger. It tells us that when we are uncertain, when we are not in control, when we don't feel good or we don't feel seen or we don't feel important, we need to fight like our life depends on us setting things right. Our nervous systems believe that if we don't establish order, dominance, if we don't establish certainty, we might actually die. And I'm here to tell you, white people, it is okay. You are not actually in that kind of danger. Rather, you are glimpsing the possibility of a world over the mountaintop. But first, to get there, we have to give up where we are. And everything in you is going to fight against that. But when you give up the lies of white supremacy, when you turn yourself against the resistance inside of you, you open towards the interconnected liberation to which our humanity owes itself. We open toward an experience of love. The growing edge is a place of transformation. An unfamiliar, always changing, sometimes scary place to be. It's the site of our deepest growth. May we have the strength to stop trying to outrun suffering, fear, and discomfort and shift our focus to opening to love wherever we might find it. May we discover that everything we could need or ask for is right here in flawed abundance. May it be so. Amen.